Welcome to the seventh episode of the Anxious Poets podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am an anxious poet. In this episode, I want to explore the connection between two completely or seemingly completely different experiences that we have in life. Um, But I also want to explore the hinterland between the two experiences because I think they are actually deeply connected. Um, And and as I go on, hopefully you'll begin to realise what I'm talking about. Um, The first poem is called The Call of the Unwritten, and it comes from the first collection. It's the title poem of the first collection that I published. And it comes from a time when I realised that I wanted to write I wanted to write poetry. I wanted to find a way of living where poetry was the central um, determinant of, of of the way I conducted my life um, as a as a creative person. Here is the poem: "The Call of the Unwritten." Time would take me up to the swallow thronged loft. Dylan Thomas. That quote, time would take me up to the swallow throng loft, comes from Fern Hill. Dylan Thomas's great uh, poem of aching nostalgia for childhood uh, and what comes with the realisation of adulthood. And he says he didn't realise that time would take me up to the swallow throng loft by the shadow of my hand. And it, it from... Uh, things I've read, people seem to think what he meant was that the shadow of his hand was his writing hand and that 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 carried him up to the swallow throng loft, this this company of of writers and poets, uh, the people who try and articulate that, uh, what what I called recently, um, vulnerability. The leading edge of poetry is vulnerability. It's the prow in which the poet and poetry uh, hazards the, itself into the world. Um, in fact, I think vulnerability is the leading edge of life, of, of a life deeply experienced. So Dylan Thomas is talking about the way that poetry had carried him into that realm of vulnerability and uh, expressive power that poetry has. The call of the unwritten. Time would take me up to the swallow thronged loft, Dylan Thomas. A feathery uncertainty in the swallow thronged loft. I am tongue-tied in the company of singers, these fleet poets of the air. Yet well-fed and ready for flight, I tremble on the claw-pot ledge and wait. Wait for my turn to squeeze through the tiny round chance that leads to the sky. Never before has the call felt so inexorably feral, nor the wind so giddy. Then the instinctual draw rises in my feather-bound chest, and I burst out of the loft like an arrow at a target, though no target I have ever known. Sweeter than the nectar of the honeysuckle is this jubilation of flight. Suicidal to the praise-seeking self that kept me loft-bound for so long in constant comparison to finer feathers. Can I trust my inner compass and continue this migratory flight to a rewritten me? Can I accept the unnamed future whispering in fragile, beating wings. A flight that captures the fierce jeopardy of living so I can render its path for others to read. A slow crossing to an undisclosed country with a chorus of chanters, in whose throng I have found my voice. And besides, the loft is behind me now. And besides, the loft is behind me now.
that poem articulates and speaks of uh, a, a point in my life when um, I actually experienced physically the sensation of coming to a realization um, of 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 entering a new phase of my life. I'd gone on a a salon series of David White's the poem the poet uh, from he's he's actually from Murfield in uh, in West Yorkshire, but he lives on uh, Whidbey Island in. Um, the Puget Sound in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Um, I'd listened to a lot of his um, CDs, as they were at the time, and I'd seen that he was doing this um, this salon series. Um, it was like three events, three gatherings over a year exploring a theme. I think the theme was something like what to remember when waking. And um, we would gather on a Monday afternoon at about four o'clock for tea and coffee in this nice hotel in Wiltshire. We'd have a session with David in the in the lovely bar area. He'd share some poetry and some thoughts and we'd speak to one another in pairs Then we'd have a lovely meal together. And then the next morning we'd have breakfast and then we'd work together for the day. We'd often go for a long walk with David uh, and talk to each other about the themes that the poetry was raising in us and the vulnerabilities that we were experiencing. And um, I was really keen to pursue this idea of writing. And I'd already started doing it, but um, felt very vulnerable and very uncertain about it and and wasn't sure whether I would be any good at it. Um, it was something I'd always done, Usually when I was feeling maudlin or depressed I'd, uh, or something significant had happened and I'd turn to writing poems um, just for my own record of the event, I suppose, or, or the feeling. But I, I really felt moved to, to do something more far-reaching. And so in the first session, David often asks the question, you know, on this ground, in this body, right now, how are you feeling? And and I, I found myself saying that I felt this feathery uncertainty, which was like a cross between butterflies in the stomach and, and, and nervousness and anxiety and huge excitement and expectation. And I went away with this idea. Um, and I'd been reading Dylan Thomas, who's one of my favourite poets, and, and I'd, I was reflecting on this idea of the swallow-thronged loft. And suddenly these words of this poem came to me and I began to write them down and work with them. Um, this idea of feathery uncertainty in the swallow-thronged loft. I am tongue-tied in a company of singers, these fleet poets of the air. I realised that, you know, reading other poets and, 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 and looking at other people's work is really encouraging on one level, but it's also quite debilitating because you just think, well, I can't match that. Um, yet well-fed and ready for flight, I tremble on the clawpot ledge and wait. That's how I felt in that, that room. We were sitting in a circle in the conservatory of this hotel and I felt well-fed. I felt like my life had given me all kinds of... Uh, building blocks and experiences I was full of them and I wanted to express them so I tremble on the clawpock ledge and wait and and where where I was with David White this summer um, I was fortunate enough to do two of David's tours help out with them be a guide on them um, and and these tours attract 30 40 people often from the United States or New Zealand or Australia to come one was to Ireland uh, to County Clare the other was to the Lake District and work with poetry uh, in the mornings and work with all this inner stuff and then go off walking in the afternoons and sharing with the group and with each other and it creates this lovely um, community of inquiry and and searching 
Um, and and my experience of it is is that it really helps people traverse certain rites of passage in life or um, movements in their in their souls. And uh, the Lake District one is is we we gather at this place called Bank Ground Farm, which is on um, the banks of Coniston Water. Beautiful. Uh, apparently, it's where um, Arthur Ransom wrote Swallows and Amazons, and the farm looks out over the lake and towards the old man of Coniston. It's about 20 minutes walk from Brantwood, where uh, John Ruskin lived. And the eaves of the uh, farm at that time of year are always full of swallows and, and, and house martins, and they swoop in and out of their little nests. Um, so I, I, when I when I think of this poem now, I always think of that that area and these birds kind of swooping over your head and and swooping out of these nests across the lake. And um, I just want to give a bit of a, a thank you and a and a hello to um, uh, the people on those two walking tours because a lot of you have been listening to my podcast and um, I'm really really happy. Um, and thankful for all the feedback that you've given me um, and uh, it makes me want to, to carry on doing this having this conversation that podcasts are um, about all the issues that, that this podcast covers about anxiety and the whole issue of, of mental health and creativity and um, and how we traverse all of this territory so uh, thank you for all of that so wait for my turn to squeeze through the tiny round chance that leads to the sky and I'd written this piece by the second salon and there was a lovely lady Sue from Sheffield uh, who I was paired up to talk with on the second salon in the morning and I read this piece to her and she was like oh god you need to read that to the group you should read it to the group that's it expresses things so well and I was thought was a big part of me was no way am I doing that and another part of me was I actually really wanted to read it I wanted to hazard this piece of work out but in front of a accomplished poet like David it felt a huge kind of risk um, I mean it's not like he was going to say oh, well that's rubbish I don't want you to ever read another poem but it, it did feel like a, a, a kind of risk that I could fall completely flat on my face anyway when it came round to me and he said have you anything to share I read this poem I waited for my turn to squeeze through the tiny round chance that leads to the sky and that where I say then the instinctual jaw rises in my feather bound chest and I burst out of the loft like an arrow at a target though no target I have ever seen or known. It, 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 I, I felt, as I read the poem, unfortunately, I apologised it into the world by saying, I've just written this piece, it's not very good, it needs a lot of work on it. Uh, you know, in other words, please don't be horrible to me. Um, and then I read it, and then as soon as I'd finished... Uh, you know, in whose throng I have found my voice and besides the loft is behind me now. Look, I'm really sorry, you know, I know it's not a very good piece, but I feel like it, blah, 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 blah. And David looked at me, paused and said, okay, I'd really like to read that poem again, but this time I don't want you to say anything else apart from the poem. Don't apologise for it, don't say anything, read the poem to us. So I did it again, and I calmed down a little bit, and I read it a little better. And it was as if I was enacting the poem. I shot out through the little tiny round circle that that group was into the world with this piece. Sweeter than the nectar of the honeysuckle is this jubilation of flight. That's absolutely how it felt. Suicidal to the praise-seeking self that kept me loft-bound for so long in constant comparison to finer feathers. I think that's an experience that lots of us have. That we just think, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to try that. 
everybody else is so much better at it than I am. You know, and you go to a writing workshop or a life drawing class or, or you know, whatever creative thing that you feel you want to do, photography, um, prose writing, whatever. It's, it's always very easy to find someone else who's better at it than you are. Um, and And rather than think I'll apprentice myself to those people, you just close the door on it oh what's the point and and there are so many other exigencies and voices saying to you well you know why don't you go and do something more um more uh useful in the world you know there's, there's lots of people who who don't ever get the time to do anything like this and you're punting about trying to be a poet or an artist or whatever um go out and do something useful or um you know, there's work to be done. There's the house to be cleaned, or there's the there's the money to be earned, or there's this, or there's that, or whatever. And and it's like so easy to listen to those voices that keep you loft bound for so long in constant comparison to finer feathers. However, when you do follow that inner voice that inner compass and continue this flight, as I say, to a, a migratory flight, to a rewritten me, there's something in the process of any artistic endeavour. You rewrite yourself, you reframe yourself with a camera, or you repaint yourself with a paintbrush. You reframe your own identity. If you step on a stage as an actor... And, and you you nail a piece or a part, you reframe who you are. You expand somehow something within you. And all those anxious voices and all that difficulty that we experience in life quietens. And, and for a moment, you think, this is who I am. Can I accept the unnamed future whispering in fragile, beating wings? When you see... The, the Martins and the Swifts and the Swallows. You know, they're such fragile little creatures, and yet they migrate thousands of miles, and they know exactly where they're going. There's this inner compass. The unnamed future whispering in fragile, beating wings. In other words, the our future life is is contained within our fragilities. A flight that captures the fierce jeopardy of living so I can render its path for others to read. The fierce jeopardy of living. And I don't mean by that some heroic uh, endeavour that, 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 you know, that, that we think we should be doing. I just mean the fierce ordinariness of our lives, the fierce jeopardy of being an ordinary human being. Lara, my second daughter, and I just watched um, To Kill a Mockingbird, the film, with Gregory Peck. And there's this lovely dialogue with him and Scout, his daughter, where he's representing this black man in the town and everyone's turned against him, he's a lawyer. And she is wondering why on earth he's doing it. And he says, you know, you just need to put on someone else's clothes for a little while and to walk around in their shoes in order to experience the world through their eyes. And, and then you'll realise there are certain things that you just have to do. And he, he's wonderfully ordinary, Atticus Finch, the character that Gregory Peck plays. You know, he's, he's the town lawyer... He's helped all these different people. Uh, he lives a very ordinary life. Um, but there's this fierce jeopardy that he is suddenly presented with, where he has to go deep within himself and find his own inner compass. And then, you know, I think art... I was just watching a, a, a great BBC uh, Imagine programme about Olafar Eliasson, uh, who's got an exhibition at the Tate Modern at the moment. 
and he you know he he's he's his art is all um performance art in so many ways um even to the point of making architecture and buildings he did this great exhibition in 2003 where there was this great orb of a sun in the turbine room at the Tate with dry ice blown and it, it created this incredible ambient uh, uh, atmosphere of, of sunset or sunrise in the mist. Um, his work is all about this, this physical experience of a piece and it, he's more and more captured the natural world and our need to preserve and and he says he realized we are not um we're not somehow objective people who stand back from the natural world we are the natural world we are in it we are we are of it and we need to experience this visceral connection to the world around us so we'll learn how to to preserve it how to nurture it how to nurture ourselves so he's rendering this path that he is on, this deep artistic experience of the world around him, for others to read, for others to enter. A slow crossing to an undisclosed country. This, If you really follow the call of the unwritten, it produces this undisclosed country, this world that you enter of your own uh, walking. And with a chorus of chanters, it introduces you. The thing I found with writing is it has introduced me to a whole community of people. I run two writing groups in Sheffield. A wonderful community of ordinary people who want to disclose themselves onto the page and then to a group of other people. And that, that cutting edge of vulnerability, that leading edge of vulnerability is so exquisite to experience when you hear someone read something for the first time and do as I did in that poem they burst out of the loft and you feel that physical experience of of, of revelation of finding this undisclosed country and finding other people other people to fly with in whose throng I've found my voice and besides the loft is behind me now. There's that great experience that once you've done it, you realise, okay, I am capable of this. I am able for this enterprise of, of poetry or photography or art or acting or whatever, whatever um, you enter the world with, whatever is that leading edge of vulnerability for you. It may be conversation. It may be, um, you know, it may be engineering, creating uh, things that of, of, of incredible use. I have a friend, um, they've developed these incredible solar batteries that they're sending to, 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 to villages in, in, in Africa and connecting them up. Uh, with with sustainable power but whatever that leading edge of vulnerability is the loft is behind you now and and you realize yes i'm capable i'm ready for this i'm grateful to david white um for alerting me to this piece that i'm going to read which concludes this first part of the podcast exploring the call of the unwritten exploring those experiences where we realize there's a new phase of our life or a new thing we want to enter into or something that we have wanted to do for all our life and never had the courage to do that feathery uncertainty and and this is wordsworth in book four of the prelude um david recited this piece standing on the top of helm crag looking down at grasmere the very landscape that that Wordsworth is describing Wordsworth's coming back from some kind of party some do uh, and he's coming back in the late night early dawn 
and suddenly the sun rises, and this is how he describes it. The cock had crowed, the sky was bright with day. Two miles I had to walk along the fields before I reached my home. Magnificent the morning was, a memorable pomp, more glorious than I ever had beheld. The sea was laughing at a distance, all the solid mountains were as bright as clouds, grain tinctured drenched in Empyrean light. And in the meadows and the lower grounds was all the sweetness of a common dawn. Dews, vapours in the melody of birds, and labourers going forth into the fields. Ah, need I say, dear friend, that to the brim my heart was full. I made no vows, but vows were then made for me. Bond unknown to me was given, that I should be, else sinning greatly, a dedicated spirit. On I walked in blessedness, which even yet remains. On I walked in blessedness, which even yet remains. Wordsworth says this, I made no vows, but vows were then made for me. Bond unknown to me was given that I should be, else sinning greatly, a dedicated spirit. I think he means there to be a poet, to be the thing he was made to be. It's such a lovely description of something completely ordinary, something that we can see every day. But in those moments of, of transformation and, and revelation, everything takes on a different hue. The morning was a memorable pomp, more glorious than ever I had ever beheld. The sea was laughing at a distance. All the solid mountains were as bright as clouds. Grain tinctured, apparently that was pink, pink-red light drenched in Empyrean light, and in the meadows and the lower grounds was all the sweetness of a common dawn. That sweetness of a common dawn is available to every person every morning, and yet it sometimes requires the attention to the call of the unwritten, to those parts of us that we ignore so terribly. It requires us to pay attention to them. And then we can become that dedicated spirit on we can walk in blessedness, which even yet remains. That's such a cure. Those moments are such a cure to the anxious, shredding mind that wants to pull apart our sense of who we are, wants to uh, drench it in pessimism and, and in useless activity on I walked in blessedness which even yet remains ah need I say dear friend apparently the dear friend is Coleridge his, his fellow poet another in the chorus of chanters um, and this is where we move from the experience of being called the feeling of awakening to when you're in the ordinary slump of a day and you question all of that how do you traverse that space between what you felt in a great excitement called to and the reality of everyday life with all its vicissitudes and challenges the second poem is called A Fairy Tale Ending and it came to me during the last two trips uh, to the to Ireland and to the lakes. And it's it's the kind of opposite experience, if you like, of those moments where we seem to experience ourselves as more whole, more who we deeply are more ready to enter the world and to 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 hazard ourselves into reality the first line of this poem the fairy tale ending is why is life for many so unrelentingly difficult why is life for many so unrelentingly difficult i have to say that my everyday experience of life is often that it is unrelentingly difficult. And not just for me, 
That's why I put for so many, for many. Because it's unrelentingly difficult for a lot of people around me too. Our lives are full of difficulty. One thing after another seem to take us apart and, and dismantle that sense, that lovely sense of who we are. And, you know, I, I, I watch my children who are now grown up, uh, who are adults. I watch their friends, I watch my friends. So many things happen to us that are unrelentingly difficult and wear us down. And no wonder, no wonder there is a, a rise in the reporting of mental illness and mental difficulty of anxiety. I was listening to a, a, a book by a woman that was on one of David's um, On the Lakes trip, a woman called Sarah Wilson from Australia. Um, and she has written this, uh, what I have enjoyed so far in listening to her book, um, this, this, this uh, great title for a book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful. First We Make the Beast Beautiful. A new story about anxiety. Uh, and she's someone who suffered really badly from anxiety and and bipolar disorder and OCD. Um, and she articulates in the book how unrelentingly difficult a lot of her life has been. Um, but that lovely title, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, um, the beast of whatever besets us, the unrelenting difficulty. So here's the poem, a fairy tale ending. And I begin with a quote from um, Cinderella by the Brothers Grimm, not Walt Disney. Cinderella says to her father, he is, um, he's, he's, so her mother has died, he's remarried, this woman, her stepmother, with these two daughters that in the Grimm's fairy tale aren't ugly. They're not ugly sisters, they're just sisters. They act ugly, they don't look ugly. Um, and he's going off to buy dresses for the women in his life, uh, except Cinderella. And he says to her, is there anything you want? And she says, and here's the quote that heads the poem, Father, break off for me the first twig that brushes against your hat on your way home. Father, break off for me the first twig that brushes against your hat on your way home. Why is life, for many, so unrelentingly difficult? Is there a curse some of us are maligned by? Are there cracks that we have stepped on? Did we walk under a ladder or pass on the stairs? Because while others pass on in calm blessedness, we stumble and end up down yet another cul-de-sac. The breathing others find so easy up the steep hill, we are gasping and lagging behind the group. The speed camera flashes in the eyes of the law and our licences are blemished with penalty points. So easy to embitter the memory, to colour the sprightly shimmer of morning with the shroud a futile comparison. To write the ship's log of catastrophe for yourself and sail alone on dreary seas of self-negation. But, and much harder, to steel yourself and say over and over in the dark hold of another day, this is my life, this is my life, this is my life. And I can only uncurse it with bloody-minded ferocity. And aggregating the unrelenting difficulty into tear-shed battering rams of acceptance. That breach the battlements of self-torture. Dismantle the siege engines of despair. You are not a crack-stepping, under-ladder-passing misdemeanour worthy only of your own castigation. No, your slow labouring, traipsing plod, lung-strained struggle, your dead-ended turnaround has birds on it. You have drawn them to you, 
engendered the song of the wagtail and the robin. Remember Cinderella's branch, her asked-for twig, desiring not a father-indulged, flounced-out ball-gown, her flight from the glint-eyed sisters that led to a grave and a growing tree of grief and the ho- that houses those very birds. When the prince comes, slipper-laden, and leaves her out in the ash-pit, the little tear-feathered messengers sing a song of sisterly disfigurement, the stepmother's shears crimping off toes and heels to fit another's pattern. And she comes, in from the cold streaks of exclusion, standing tall in her own ordinary, everyday royalty. You were never cursed. They were grimly blinded, unsighted to the bird-singing path of enchanting difficulty. You were never cursed. They were grimly blinded, unsighted to the bird-singing path of enchanting difficulty. That poem is a a search for meaning in the unrelenting difficulty of life. I often feel, you know, especially when I go on something like David White's things or, you know, you watch television programmes, Imagine or um, arts programmes and you hear this lovely... uh, tripping from one artistic glory to another that this person being interviewed has has experienced. I know that's not really true, but it is how you hear it sometimes. And that that first part of the poem, is there some curse some of us are maligned by? Are there cracks that we have stepped on? Did we walk under a ladder or pass on the stairs? Um, Because while others pass on in calm blessedness, we stumble and end up down yet another cul-de-sac you quite often feel like oh you know how did I end up here again in this difficulty in this feeling in this relationship or or having said the wrong thing or or missed the chance to to put yourself in the path of something good um to and, and as I say in the poem so easy to embitter the memory. Anxiety and, and, and mental health difficulties can embitter the memory um, and make you cast everything that comes towards you in the costume of the difficult past that you've experienced. So easy to embitter the memory, to colour the sprightly shimmer of morning with a shroud of futile comparison to write the ship's log of catastrophe for yourself and sail alone on dreary seas of self-negation. I think self-negation makes you feel alone, makes you feel like there's no one who cares or no one who understands what you're going through. Um, Or if they really knew what I was like, they wouldn't care. But, and much harder, to steal yourself and say over and over in the dark hold of another day, this is my life, this is my life, this is my life. In fairy tales, things often come in threes. If, if, if you are being given a strong message, it will come in threes. So I repeat that in the poem three times. This is my life, this is my life, this is my life. It is the way. This is who I am. This is what is happening to me. And I can only uncurse it with bloody-minded ferocity and aggregating the unrelenting difficulty into tear-shed battering rams of acceptance. I purposely use that language of, of battering rams, that, that, that your tears can become battering rams of acceptance. Because acceptance is the only way, it seems to me, that breach the battlements of self-torture, dismantle the siege engines of despair. If I can accept myself where I am right now, 
something happens, something happens, something changes. There is a, 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 um, a breathing out, a, a letting go. And, and, and the poem goes on, You are not a crack-stepping, under-ladder-passing misdemeanour, worthy only of your own castigation. No, your slow, labouring, traipsing plod, lung-strained struggle, your dead-ended turnaround has birds on it. I was stuck halfway through this poem and thinking, actually, I have no bloody idea how, how you get out of this, how this unrelenting difficulty actually has a reason or a purpose, how I come through this. And I went to the window. I was actually on one of the, the tours, and um, I think David was speaking, and I, was, I often start writing when he speaks something. It stirs some kind of creativity. And I went out to the window, and there was a wagtail sitting in the kitchen, uh, in the frame of the kitchen window, singing. And I suddenly remembered the, 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 the fairy tale of Cinderella. And reading the Grimm's version, somebody said to me, read Grimm's fairy tales, they're so visceral and, 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 and mean and, and difficult um, and, and, and bloody. So I read Ashenpootle, Cinderella, and it is really powerful. Um, especially this, this notion that her, her mother dies and is buried and Cinderella visits the grave three times a day and weeps there. And she asks her father for this twig. And what she does with the twig is she goes to the grave and she plants it. And she weeps over it every day, three times a day. She grieves tear-shed, battering rams of acceptance. Tears, grief are the human way of accepting the unacceptable. To grieve, to shed tears, to keen, to moan, to 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 um, lament. There's a whole book in the in the Jewish scripture called Lamentations, and it's full of deep-seated lamenting. Because if 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 you study these texts, like there's certain psalms in the in the Jewish scripture that begin, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Halfway through, there's always a turn that comes from these tears shed, battering rams of acceptance, that says, but who else am I going to go to? In other words, what else am I going to do but get up the next morning and, and look at the amazing glory and pomp of a common dawn? How... Am I going to carry on? Like she says in Out of Africa, Karen Blixen, she says, well, I will, I will be bigger than this. I will grieve this. So Cinderella sheds these tears. And the little birds, as the tree grows in the waters of her grief, the little birds come to live in the tree, to live in the branches of her grief. And... They, when uh, you have this whole thing that Cinderella is, is given a dress and everything and she goes to the ball and she meets the prince. In other words, she finds her true self and, and she finds the echo of that in the prince. I think there's a way of reading that fairy tale that's not just, you know, this poor girl needs, needs a prince or she's screwed. I think it's she finds the echo in the outside world telling her she is not Ashen Poodle, she is not Cinderella, she is something other than that. And when that part of her returns, if you took a Jungian way of reading that fairy tale, that every part of it is a part of her, maybe, but when that part of her that has woken up comes to find if 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 she fits this slipper, she fits this invitation to a new life the others try and steal it from her the, the the stepmother and the sisters try and steal it from her 
And what happens is that the, the stepmother cuts off, helps the girls, the sisters, cut off parts of their feet to fit the slipper, which is what I mean where I say... Um, a song of sisterly disfigurement, the stepmother's shears crimping off toes and heels to fit another's pattern. So often, we cut off parts of ourselves to fit the pattern of what we think is acceptable. You know, you only got to watch programmes about plastic surgery, male and female, and all these enhancements that we try and, and, and deliver to our bodies because we're, we're given this reflection all the time in, in, in media, social media and in the magazine world and everything of what it means to be an acceptable human being. And, and they do this, they cut their feet and the little birds, as they ride past with the prince who thinks he's found this, 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 this woman, they sing, look at her feet, look at her feet, look at the blood, look at the blood. And he realises this is, and they say, this is not the one for you. This is not the one for you. And he realises the blood coming out of the slipper, she's cut her foot and it happens twice. The birds tell the truth. The birds of her grief tell the truth. And then then they say, look at Cinderella. And, And she puts on the slipper and this invitation to this new life opens up before her. So, no, your slow, labouring, traipsing plod, lung-strained struggle, your dead-ended turnaround has birds on it, and you have drawn them to you, engendered the song of the wagtail and the robin. Remember Cinderella's branch, her asked-for twig, desiring not a father-indulged flounced-out ball-gown, her flight from the glint-eyed sisters that led to a grave and a growing tree of grief that houses those very birds. When the prince comes, slipper-laden, leaves her out in the ash pit. The little tear-feathered messengers sing a song of sisterly disfigurement, the stepmother's shears crimping off toes and heels to fit another's pattern. And she comes in from the cold streaks of exclusion, standing tall in her own ordinary, everyday royalty. I really believe this, that each one of us has an ordinary, everyday royalty that if we can say to that mantra to ourselves, this is your life, this is your life, this is your life, uh, this is my life, this is my life, this is my life, then we begin to find that ordinary everyday royalty, that sense of we are actually okay, we are okay, you know, just because I feel anxious in parts of the day doesn't mean the whole day is a complete write-off. It just means I felt anxious for certain parts of the day. And there were other moments that were, that were great, that were blissful even, or connections that I made with people that I love, or new people have come into my life. I had this amazing experience with this Hasselblad camera that Wilma and I inherited from her auntie. And... Um, I didn't know how to use it and I'd been to the local cafe and I saw this guy uh, with one in his hand, a, a similar medium format camera and I said to him, oh I've just found one of these, I've just inherited one, I don't know how to use it and he said, oh well when you get it fixed, email me, here's my email address and we'll meet up and we'll talk cameras. So I did so and we sat down and he was so generous with his time. Uh, and we talked about, he showed me how to use the camera and the guy sitting on the left of me kept making kind of very sage comments. And I said, oh, you, you, you know these cameras? And he said, oh, yeah, that's my business. I, um, I renovate and, um, and, and source parts for Hasselblad cameras. And between the two of them, they gave me a masterclass in Hasselblad photography. Um, and and it, um, uh, Laura said to me, wow, that's amazing. Where did they come from? Um and yet, in another part of that day, I'd felt terribly anxious and, and, and a bit panicky and, and would have been very easy for me to write the whole day off. So, we stand tall in our own ordinary, everyday royalty. And what do you mean by royalty? Well, in the Christian tradition, 
there's this this idea that we are sons and daughters of God. In the Jewish scripture, what Christians call the Old Testament, you know, Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Well, whether you believe in God or not, I think it's trying to express that we have within us this imprint of something phenomenally conscious, phenomenally aware of our place in the world and our our ability to be self-present and to appreciate beauty and to appreciate darkness and to hold all these things together in this one human life that lasts for such a short time. I think that's what those things are all aiming to express to us, our own ordinary, everyday royalty. That, that, that like Wordsworth says, that, you know, that the, 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 all the glory of a common dawn I am inheriting as I walk through these mountains. And that you were never cursed. They were grimly blinded. The end of that fairy tale, the birds blind the sisters because they could never see. And people who seek to live another's life to fit patterns that they're not made for and actually are a fantasy anyway, blind themselves. And, and, it, and you only have to look around at the moment to see people who are completely blind. They think they can see, but they don't have any grasp of what makes for, for a loving, compassionate society or a loving, compassionate self. You were never cursed. They were grimly blinded, unsighted to the bird singing path of enchanting difficulty. The unrelenting difficulty has an enchantment all its own that creates this sense of real humanity. It engenders a compassionate way of looking at yourself and looking at the world around you. Remember Cinderella's branch, her asked for twig, desiring not a father indulged flounced out ball gown, her flight from the glint-eyed sisters that led to a grave and a growing tree of grief that houses those very birds. When the prince comes, slipper-laden, and leaves her out in the ash pit, the little tear-feathered messengers sing a song of sisterly disfigurement. The stepmother's shears crimping off toes and heels to fit another's pattern, and she comes in from the cold streaks of exclusion, standing tall in her own ordinary, everyday royalty. You were never cursed. They were grimly blinded, unsighted to the bird-singing path of enchanting difficulty. Thank you. Speak to you next time. This is the often very anxious poet. Thanks for listening.